Amen to that. I wish I could sing it a little louder this morning. That's my only problem. Uh, did the best I could. First Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you're visiting, we're going through a series right now. Called, it's a church health series. What makes a church healthy? What are ways that we can be healthier? Um, members, many of you weren't here the first two times we did this. Some of you weren't here. Many of you weren't here. In fact, most of you weren't here the first time we did this uh, nearly 12 years ago. And so it's a joy to be doing this again because these things are so important. Biblical practice of church discipline. Imagine for a moment that your nephew needs a place to stay. He has just separated from his wife of 20 years. They have four children together. So they have nowhere to go, really. So you invite them to come and stay with you at your home. But you make a very unwise uh, decision, make a mistake. You fail to lay down some house rules, if you will, before they move into your home. Things to hold each other accountable with, you know, that kind of thing. So things go pretty good for at first. You know, everybody's put on their nicest face at first. You know, it's the honeymoon phase. But then the bottom falls out after just a few months. The kids are out of control. Remember, there's four kids, right? The oldest, 16-year-old son, he's sneaking out at night. He's going to, off to get drunk with all his friends and having a good time, sneaking back in, you know. The younger ones are little holy terrors. They leave their toys all over the house, on the steps, etc. They're drawing on your walls with crayon and maybe worse, like Sharpies and such. Uh, they're smacking you or attempting to attack you when you try to stop them from hurting themselves or others or your home. Everything's falling apart. But to top it all off, if these things weren't bad enough, your nephew has met a, another young woman. And they've been hanging out a lot together, and he brings her around a lot. And this young woman he brings into your home, and she's spending the night in the nephew's bedroom every night now. From this situation, you realize a few things, probably. You realize that you should have done what in the first place? You should have had some type of house rules for accountability. Like, hey, if we're going to live together, there has to be a common agreement what it means to live in this house. And then secondly, you know that you must do something now, even though it's not, too, it's not as though it's too late. In fact, it's not too late. You must find a way to lovingly correct your nephews and his children before things get even worse. Now, would anybody in this room with a level head call that this idea of having house rules and accountability unreasonable? Would it be uh, unloving? Would it be harsh, judgmental? Or is it actually the most loving and caring, considerate thing that you could do for everyone that's involved? This sample or example uh, of this principle applies not only to your homes, to your workplaces, and to the hospitals, and to factories, and to, and, and to businesses. This applies supremely 
to the local church. Because the Bible says that the church is the household of God. It's a family. It's a household. Yet in our age, this you go back 100 years, this was not as much of an issue. But in our age, in my lifetime especially, some people, many people believe that the church, the family of God, is a free-for-all. It's like the nephew and his four kids. You move in and you do whatever you want to. You're free to live the life that you want to live with no accountability to your fellow Christians. It's a sad day. And I'm not just making this, this is not an exaggerative statement, it's serious. It is a sad day when the standard for membership in a local church is, is less demanding than the standard of membership in our local Rotary Club. Go to the internet and look what it means to be a part of the Rotary Club. Look at their standards of expectations. And you tell me that there are not way too many churches in our world, in America in particular, that have completely forsaken the idea of holy standards of what it means to be a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is really one of the best examples of holy standards in the Bible when it comes to church membership. What does it mean to be a member of a local church? Does the way we live matter? And do we have the authority as fellow Christians to call other fellow Christians to the carpet for their sin or not? Paul answers this question for us in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Paul writes, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I am, have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the word of God. May he add his blessings to the reading of his word this morning. So we read this, and I remember as a young called of God preacher, early seminary days, reading through the Bible, like the whole Bible for the first time in my life, to be honest with you. And I remember, remember, remember encountering 1 Corinthians 5 and going, wow, wow, this is what the church is to be about, if necessary. This is an interesting text, is it not? Paul makes it perfectly clear for us, church family, how we are to respond if and when one of our members 
is living a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Notice what I did not say. If one of our members commits sin, but yet they confess it. No, one of our members is living a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Every part of that is very important. What does he teach us? Number one, first main truth, unrepentant sin within the church should be a cause of mourning. You see, if, if you're like some folks, Pharisees, they love to jump on the chance to, to shove some theology down someone's throat. You got to say, look how evil you are, look how holy we are. So it's very important for us to understand that when it comes to church discipline, our stance is not arrogance, it's not enjoyment of disciplining someone, it's mourning, it's sadness. As you read this first letter to the Corinthians, you see a very young church, it's not that old of a church, facing many internal conflicts, interpersonal, theological, they got a lot of issues going on there in Corinth. Chapter 5, Paul addresses one of those problems. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. The word actually there means completely or everywhere as an adverb. It, It is completely, it is completely reported, it is everywhere reported. The condition of the church is completely heard everywhere. Where? Well, at the very least, within the church. At the very least, neighboring churches. And most likely, in the community of Corinth itself. Oh yeah, those Corinthians think they're so holy and righteous and that they're more holy than we are, us pagans are, when they're committing the same kind and worse sins than we are. So, they hear that this church is tolerating a type of sin that not even unbelievers think is okay to commit. And the idea here is the idea of a sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality here in the Greek is porneia. We get our Greek pornography from this word. It's it's a catch-all phrase for every type of sexual sin under the moon. Every one of them, whatever it may be. It's a catch-all term for the heinousness of sexual immorality, of sexual sin. So we also translate it fornication oftentimes. So the, the idea here is fornication. All fornication is sin. But Paul says the type here is not even tolerated among the pagans. And what is that type of fornication? He says, a man has his father's wife. If we took a survey in this room, I think everybody would agree, whether you're a Christian or not, that's wrong. It's wrong. A man has his father's wife. It's his stepmother in most likelihood, as opposed to his own mom. It's most literally stepmom. This is an incestuous type of fornication going on in the church. Paul describes the reason for their toleration. Why are they tolerating it? Why are the Corinthians tolerating it? The same reason that churches today tolerate sin in their local church. He tells us, verse 2, and you are arrogant. Tolerating sin is pride, it's arrogance, it's always, because the root of all sin is pride. The root of all sin is arrogance. Sin is the arrogant thought that you know better than God knows about morality, what is right and wrong. 
Therefore, all sin is what? Pride. It's arrogance and thinking that you know better. The church was spiritually proud of what? Probably. Well, if you look at the entire book of 1 Corinthians, you pick up on it pretty quickly. The Corinthians were very proud that they were, quote, free in Christ. Free. The grace of God has set us free. We are free in Christ. We are not defined by what we do with our bodies. We are defined by the reality that we have transcended the body to the point that we are free in the spirit to do what we want to with the body. Now, it wasn't full on that idea yet. That's what we call Gnosticism, by the way. But Gnostic thoughts were in the Corinthian church already. They believed that they had a freedom in Christ that would allow them to step back and go, look how gracious we are, how kind we are. Say, oh, man, that's terrible, Brother Jeremy. How many churches in our world today say, hey, our local church is, tolerates the LGBTQ plus community. We're tolerant. We're tolerant of, of those who would kill a baby in the womb through abortion. We're tolerant of that. So before we in our culture get this self-righteous idea toward those back then, friend, listen to me. All sin is arrogance, and all toleration of sin is arrogance. Is it true that the Christian is free from sin? Yes. We have been set free from sin, but we are not free to sin. That's that tension that we have to keep in mind. We have been freed from sin, yet we are not free to sin. And Paul is writing to address this error. So, Paul writes, verse 2, he tells them what the Christian response ought to be. Not arrogance, but what? Ought you not rather to mourn? Ought you not rather be humbled? Have a humility, have a sadness, to be brokenhearted? It's not a time of, oh, look how tolerant we are of of people who are struggling with sin. And it's also not, oh, we're going to beat these sinners down with our religion. No, it should break our hearts. Because in truth, haven't we all been in a place in our life, whether before a Christian or even after we became a Christian, that we have found ourselves in a valley of sin like that? And we should be broken Because we know what they're going through. We know the loneliness. We know the fear. We know their arrogance. You know their pride. All this. We know about it because we've been there. It should tear our hearts apart. Often the modern day church fares little better than the first Corinthian church. We live in what you would call a pragmatic. It means if it works, do it. If it works to get them here, do it. Pragmatic entertainment-driven culture that has infiltrated many of our churches in America, evidenced by the chanted mantra, judge not. The pragmatic, entertainment-driven gospel cannot survive without the mantra, judge not. I believe that. They're connected. Ironically, we have standards, as I alluded to earlier, in other areas of life. When you go to build a home, you want a contractor that really knows what he's doing, and he's going to follow a procedure. He's going to use some actual math, right? A standard measurement, standard building practices. You go to the hospital, you want a heart surgeon that follows the procedures because they're important. 
how much more significant is it that our standings of standard of living as Christians, along with the fe- our fellow church members, be upheld? Paul is clear. Number two, second main point, unrepentant sin within the church must be corrected. We start with mourning. We start with sadness. We start with a broken heart, but then we proceed to action. It must be corrected. Paul is teaching what we call church discipline. He doesn't use that phrase. Neither does Jesus officially use that phrase. It's a theological term that we apply to the teachings that we find in the scriptures. Look at verse 2 again. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Well, I don't think, and I just think this and that, and I think this is too harsh, and I don't think. Friend, I don't really care what you think. And you shouldn't care what I think unless it comes from this book. And what does this book say? He said, well, it's unloving. No, it's not. Paul's already said, we should be brokenhearted about this. It should devastate our souls. And then what does he say? He says, let that sinner Unrepentant sinner, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Church discipline, let me say this as a caveat. Church discipline is not about microscoping one another. It's not about microscoping each other's lives. Every little comment, every little attitude, every little action is under the microscope. Friend, a church like that won't survive long, or it'll end up being full of Pharisees. Legalists love fellow legalists because legalists believe the same thing, and that is, I'm holy, they aren't. It kills the church just as much as failing to do church discipline. So we're not talking about Pharisaical legalism. Church discipline is not microscoping, it's addressing. It's addressing legitimate sins among members who refuse to repent of not debatable sins, but of obvious sins, egregious sins, persistent sins, lifestyles of sin. Every member of Grace Life Baptist Church deserves to be put out of this church because of our sin in our daily lives. Amen? That's what I deserve. Pastor, starting right here, up here. That's what you and I deserve. In God's grace, he sends his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin day in and day out, leading us to repentance. But friend, when one of us gets in a groove of sin where we will not yield to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God and to fellow believers, we must be put out of the church if we will not repent. Paul reinforces this, verse 3, for though absent in the body, Paul's not even there, and he's going to make this assessment. I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Why can Paul make such an assessment? Because it's so obvious. The solution is so obvious because the man's sin is so obvious. It's not like a debatable issue. And by the way, I'm, I'm first to say Church discipline should never be carried out in a, I'm not sure what's going on here kind of a situation. Yeah, just like in a court of law, there needs to be proof, right? There needs to be some substance to it, evidences, witnesses, indeed. So 
The solution's obvious because the man's sin is obvious. Paul then gives three very basic steps to this church discipline of what is to be done. Number one, deliver the unrepentant man to Satan. Verse four and five, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Assembling here, he says, assembling yourselves in the name of Jesus. What does that tell you? It's not in our name. It's not in our authority, therefore. It also tells us this is a formal thing. This is a formalized, hey, let's officially meet together so that everybody in the church, including the sinning member, knows exactly what's going on. We're not, it's not in some back room. I remember having a deacon tell me some years ago, just not too long ago, in fact, not of this church, thank God. I would tell, hey, they wouldn't be a deacon anymore probably if they said this, but Oh, well, I mean, when we deal with sin in the church, you know, the, the church never knows about it. We just deal with it in our deacons' meetings. On whose authority? No, Paul says when you are assembled together, church, a formalized meeting, Jesus will be with you. And if Jesus is with you, it means you have his authority. If you have his authority, you have his power to do whatever comes out of that meeting assembling in that way. The idea of delivering someone to Satan, it sounds terrible, and it is. He says Christians shouldn't do terrible things. We should do terrible things that are holy. There are, uh, holiness is terrible in the sense that it's, it's, it's to be feared. We are to fear a holy God. When people encounter God in the Bible, the word fear and terror came often in the, in the text, right? And so, to deliver someone over to Satan is to deliver them outside, listen carefully, outside the physical and spiritual safety of the local church, of a local church. We should never, ever, ever underestimate the safety that we possess as being a member of this local church. It's not just our local church, though. If you decided, and we don't want to lose you, but if you decided to move your membership to another church down the road or another city, then you should not estimate the spiritual safety and physical safety of being a part of that church. It's not about well, grace life or we're, you know, we're a cult, and if you're not with us, then you're not in with Jesus. No, we're saying that every local church that's a true church is a place of safe haven for the bodies and the soul, not just the soul, the bodies and the souls of men. Verse five, this is not unloving to do this to people. It is loving. Paul says so. Verse five, it is for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He says that first part doesn't sound very loving. It's very loving because the second part is eternal. The body is temporary and yes, we'll have a body forever but the point he's making is this earthly life through the judgment of God will be brought to an end for the sake of his soul living forever. The purpose is not for us to declare final judgment on someone who is unrepentant. That's one of the accusations that I've received over the years because I believe in church discipline. Well, it's judgmental and you're judging people and you're, you're making final judgment. No, I'm not. We're not. We are not the final judges of, the man, of a man's soul. We're not saying they're going to hell because we set them outside the flock. We're saying that this person is underneath the judgment of God. They're in his hands. God will determine what will happen with them. This is 
But this isn't the only kind of cleansing that is to take place. Church discipline, deliver the person over to Satan. Two, cleanse out sin from among the rest of the church. This is one thing I don't know that I've emphasized in years past when I've done this because I've always focused on the sinning unbeliever, or the believer rather, the unrepentant believer more. But think about what Paul does here. He's saying, take out the sinning believer from among you. But then he says, clean yourself up too. That's interesting. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good, Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The unrepentance man, man's sin was very clear. It was fornication. But the majority, not every member probably, right? But the majority of the Corinthian church were guilty of a sin of their own, weren't they? What was that sin? Arrogance, boasting, intolerating this man's sin. And he says, this isn't good. Why is this boasting so bad? Because again, it's self-perceived spiritual enlightenment. Look how far we've come in today's world. Well, we're not like those Christians 100 years ago that, that were intolerant about homosexuality. We're open to that now. Oh, really? You are, right? Spiritual enlightenment. Spiritual freedom. Paul says that kind of boasting is like leaven. Now, I know a couple of you ladies, I think, Matt, your wife's been making a lot of sourdough bread here lately. I don't want to put Becky on the spot. She might want to put some freebie sourdoughs out there. I don't know. Now I'm really putting her on the spot. I'm kidding. You got all these different types of breads and different, you know, some you do leaven, some you got unleavened breads and all this, but breads where you put in the leaven. How much do you put in there for, say, a lump this big? Let's, a lot? It's like, whoo, whole cup. Oh, man, you're going to have trouble doesn't take much. What's Paul saying? He says, just a little bit of sin in the church can destroy the church. Verse 7, the solution to this is cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. The cleansing is to be at the congregational level. Hey, cleanse yourself out. But inevitably, that means it's also to be at the individual level because the congregation is made up of what? Individuals. The church is a corporate body made up of individual members of that body. And so we are to cleanse out the leaven so that we're a new lump. What's the imagery going on here? What's the old leaven about, do you think? Well, it's a reference to the Old Testament Passover meal, which was God's appointed feast for God's people who were to go into their homes, clean out the entire home of what? Leaven? Before they could sacrifice the lamb for the sacrificial meal, the Passover meal. Now, here, the old leaven, I think, most scholars agree, signifies our old life of sin. Hey, cleanse out the way you used to be. Cleanse, don't be that old person that you were. Cleanse out the old life of sin because in Christ, we are a new lump. There is no business for sin being in the life of the Christian because we're not the old lump, we're the new lump. We've been made new in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a new lump. If you're not a new lump, you're not a Christian. So if there's sin in you, cleanse it out. In Christ, we're this new lump. How do we become this new lump? Because Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, came down. And he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins so that we could be this new lump. 
Only by cleansing our hearts from this sin can we proceed to the third step. So turn over the sinning brother to Satan, cleanse out the church, three, celebrate Christ's new covenant, Passover. Only then can we celebrate what we're supposed to be celebrating. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. What festival? I think in light of the old leaven, the Old Testament Passover, I think he's talking about the new Passover lamb who is Jesus. I think he's talking about the Lord's Supper, exactly, or what we call communion. The Old Testament Passover meal was a type or a foreshadow of Christ Jesus coming and dying for our sins to cleanse out the old leaven, if you will. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant way to celebrate the Passover. We don't celebrate the old Passover. Now, I mean, you can, through just Jewish tradition, if you want to observe it and learn from that, that's fine. I'm not against that. But there is like a whole Zionist movement out there among those who profess to be Christians where they've just gone overboard. And not only are they trying to replicate, uh, uh, replicate this, but they're also trying to replicate, replicate all of the Old Testament meals and festivals. And I'm just here to tell you, Christ is the end of the law for those who have faith. It's not needed. Now, if, I mean, if you want to celebrate it for fun, if you will, for learning, okay. But it's no longer needed. Truly, so long as we attempt to celebrate communion while harboring sin in our hearts, it's a meaningless meal at best and a physical and spiritual danger at worst. Paul says, celebrate the new covenant Passover meal, cleanse out the old leaven, and then celebrate it. But if we're harboring sin, it's meaningless at the least, but worse, it's a physical and spiritual danger. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. We've looked at these many times. Verses 27 through 32, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God is gracious. We deserve hell. But even in his judgment of Christians, whew, we get grace. The grace of his judgment. That's interesting, isn't it? So how are we to celebrate Christ's new Passover meal together? Paul tells us, but he starts with the how not to. Verse 8, now, not with the old leaven. Don't celebrate the festival with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The old leaven of our life and sin was characterized by, these words are basically synonyms in Greek, malice and evil. They mean wickedness, depravity, corruption. That's the way we used to be. Our fellowship is to be with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Those are interesting opposites, aren't they? Therefore, what can we say about the Corinthians' toleration of this man's sin in the church? It was malicious, and it was evil, or it was insincere and full of lies. Well, we tolerate, we can tolerate this because of our freedom in Christ and, look, you know, the grace of God. Paul's calling baloney on that is what he's doing. He said, hmm, no. 
That's insincerity, and that is deception. It is lies. It is wickedness, and it is malice. That's stout, isn't it? Now, Paul's steps, his little miniature three steps in church discipline, are really just a very simplified version, I would say, of Jesus' much more detailed teaching on church discipline, which we won't preach through today, but I will read it. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Jesus tells us exactly how we as a church, especially when the sin starts at an individual one-on-one level, how are we to deal with sin within the church? And by the way, uh, Matt and I have done this many times in God's grace. God works it out. People come to us at times and be like, you know, I heard this or this or that. I said, well, well, have you talked to that person yet? Have you gone to them and talked to them? Well, no, I haven't done that yet. You need to do that. For you ever come to the elders about perceived, because it may not be real sin, perceived sin with a, a brother or sister, go to them. Go to them. What does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I don't need to hear about it. It's not that I don't care. It's that it's not my business yet. I don't want to hear about it. You and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Maybe you you do get the elders involved at that point. I don't, maybe that'd be best. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the congregation. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask... It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, again, we could spend a lot of time there, but we can't this morning for sake of time. We are right, listen church, we are right to show mercy to one another and do it frequently, deeply, truly. Because we all are struggling with sin. Me, you, every one of us. We're fighting sin. We're struggling with sin. We are right to err, and we will err at it. Mercy, we, we will, God doesn't err with mercy, but you and me, we err with mercy. But it is better to err with mercy than to be overly harsh. But we are wrong to tolerate sin if it is obvious, egregious, persistent, and the person is refusing to repent. We therefore must reevaluate what does it even mean to be a member of the church anyway. Paul helps us in these final verses. Look at the final verses, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, for the sake of time, we'll keep this fairly short, expositionally speaking. It's really definitely a whole other sermon. In fact, in years past, I just preached two sermons, but I didn't do that this time. Number three is one sermon packed into one point. Number three, God is the judge of those outside the church 
and the church is the judge of those inside it. You want to know that you're a legalist? You'll flip that. Legalism flips that. Where we're the holy ones and everybody else is unholy. And look how, look at those poor, pitiful, stupid sinners out there. If they could just be holy like us. No, no, no. God is the judge of those outside. Yes, we call a spade a spade. We call sin, sin out there in the world. But we let God handle the judgment part. The church is the judge of those inside it. Surprising to most Christians, 1 Corinthians, hear me out, is not the first letter to the Corinthians. You say, but it says 1 Corinthians, Jeremy. I know, I got you. There's actually, we know, we know that there are four, at least four letters written to the Corinthian church. He said, where are the other two? They weren't inspired. So how do you know they weren't inspired? They're not in the Bible. First and second Corinthians were inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit. That's why they're here. In fact, one, one evidence that the first letter, truly first letter, was not inspired is the fact that Paul has to write and correct himself in, in a sense. He's really just clarifying, but we could debate that. Nonetheless, my point being, when Paul, in his previous letter to 1 Corinthians, the true first letter to the Corinthians, he had said, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they had misunderstood that. Don't associate with sexually immoral people out there in the world. But inside the church, it's okay, is the idea, is what they took. Paul clarifies what he meant, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. As the church, as the church, our responsibility is not to judge the unbelievers outside of the church. Why? Because he says that means we'd have to go out of the world. If, if we're going to be like, oh, we got to judge the world. We can't live in the world. You can't live in this world in that way. Rather, Paul clarifies, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The word associate, you say, well, that probably does not that big of a deal, you know. He doesn't really mean to have nothing to do with a fellow Christian in the church who sinned. He's not, the word associate means to mingle or to mix, that translates into English pretty well. That helps us. Don't mingle with them. Don't mix with them. Don't hang out with. Don't live life with a bro someone who calls himself a brother or sister in Christ, and they're not living like it. You're not saying they're not. You're just saying, I can't live as if you are. He says specifically not to even eat with, someone, with such a one. What does that mean exactly? Well, most directly, it means don't take the Lord's Supper with them. They are barred from the Lord's table. You say, if someone's under church discipline in our church, are they welcome to come to church for worship services? Absolutely, they are. They're encouraged to. In fact, I would exhort them to. You say, would they be free to take the Lord's Supper? Absolutely not. You said you would call, you would call them out publicly? Eh, probably not that per se. But we would publicly, purposely not allow them to take the Lord's Supper. Yes, at the very least. And so this reminds us, this is very important. Two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the official God-ordained entrance into the Christian faith. The entrance, the doorway into the body of the church. The Lord's Supper is the sentinel, the guard at the door that says, are you and I in a position 
to remain members of the church. So the baptism is the doorway into the church, and the Lord's Supper is the guard at the door that says, are you in or are you out? Because when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we saying? We're saying, listen, I'm not free from sin. I'm not perfect, but I'm a a believer. I'm a repentant believer. I'm sorry for my sin. You're submitting to what the supper symbolizes. And so, more indirectly, not to eat with someone would be not to have any type of fellowship with them. Shopping, golfing, fishing, etc., The interactions we have should be to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. How do you treat an unbeliever? Bad. I treat them bad. No. How do you treat an unbeliever? With love. Specifically, what kind of love? Sharing the gospel with them. Pleading with them to follow Christ. Repent. So, go out to eat? Sure. For the purpose of evangelism. Not just to hang out. The only exception, of course, would be if a person is a member of your own family, a spouse, a child. You can't stop living your life completely. We're not, we're not Muslims. We're not saying we can disc, you know, uh, you know, completely cut our ties off with family in that way, unless for some reason they're really causing a lot of problems. Anyway, it's helpful that Paul adds several examples of sin other than fornication because we tend to see sexual sin as the worst of the worst. Paul says, if they're guilty of sexual morality or... Greed, swindling, adultery, reviling, or drunkenness, we're to address all of it. As Paul concludes, verses 12 through 13, is it not the, for, for what have we to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word purge literally means remove from a group, to remove from a group of people. We are not in the business of judging the world. God is their judge. We're in the business of judging one another by the authority that God, our judge, has given us. Thankfully, you say, whew, this is going to create problems in the church. No, thankfully, most church discipline is not corrective discipline, like Paul's talking about here. Most discipline in the local church is what we call formative discipline. You hear a sermon, you go to a life group, you hear the Bible, you're in a Bible study of some kind with fellow members, you hear the word of God and you respond positively, you repentantly, you learn from it, you learn, you hear a sermon about church discipline and maybe you misunderstood it before or you misinterpreted it or you were against it before, but now that you hear what the Bible has to say, you believe it, you submit to it, you're repentant about it. What has happened? Discipline has happened in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You have been formatively disciplined. And the majority of our discipline, that's how it comes. Thank God for that. When we encounter words God, excuse me, when we encounter God's word together, the question I ask in closing is, will you choose to submit to the word or not? If so, formative discipline has been successful. But the question is, and I've had this put to me several times at different times, is corrective discipline even work? Doing what Paul says, does that work? Seems like it wouldn't work. Take courage from the end of the story, I believe, the end of the story. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, Paul writes over there in the second letter, 
Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, we can't prove it 100%, but most people agree, many people, Christians agree, that Paul is talking about this man. That the church set him outside the church, and it worked. That this man was restored and reconciled to the church. At Grace Life, our mission statement, majority of it's out there on the wall. We cut it a little short because it's so big. Our mission statement is proclaiming God's glory in Christ. But if you and I do not hold one another accountable to walking with Christ, how will unbelievers in this world know that that gospel of God's glory in Christ is true? How can they know if there's members of us living in habitual, unrepentant sin? May the Lord grant us his grace to cleanse out the old leaven of our formal sinful living as we celebrate Christ's Passover with the unleavened bread of this new lump. God has called us to walk in holiness. If you're here this morning, if I can help, maybe this morning you'd rather talk to me after the service, a few feet away, I understand that. But if there's anyone here this morning that needs to talk about what it means to walk with Christ, we are available. Let's pray. God, we do ask you for your help this morning, not to be harsh and judgmental toward one another regarding sin. Truly, we don't want that. We also pray and ask you, Lord, that we not be negligent in tolerating one another's sin. Oh, Lord, don't let us be microscopers where that's all we're concerned about. Like the Ephesian church seemed to be a church who left her first love. Her doctrine was good and it was right. They lost a love for one another because they lost sight of their great love for you. Lord, may we neither be judgmental nor negligent. Help us. Father, wherever there may be some leaven among us, would you empower us by the Spirit even now to cleanse out that leaven. We know that in Christ we're a new lump. May we cleanse out our sin. May we see that every Sunday is a great opportunity for us to examine ourselves, even as we should be doing every day of the week. So Lord, keep us pure for the sake of your glory, 